Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today is more of a throwback mini-episode of Attendance Bias. See, it's been a while since I've released an episode about my own meaningful experience at a fish show, and the summer 2021 tour is coming to a close at the time that I'm recording, so I've been able to share some of my favorite stories and jams with people in person and online. So a lot of memories that I haven't thought of in a really long time over the course of these past few weeks have come to the forefront of my mind. And it's been a while since I've recorded an episode based on my own experience as opposed to a guest's, so I'm really excited to share this one with you today. And if you've never listened to Attendance Bias before, or if you're a new listener, mini-episodes are a bit less detailed than full-length episodes, and they're just meant to give a quick glimpse into my history, both as a person and as a fan. Today's mini-episode will focus on Carini from December 30th, 2012 at Madison Square Garden in New York City. I chose this performance because it kind of put a button on what I considered to be the best year of music since the band's return in 2009, and specifically, this Carini was the darkest and most diverse but still cohesive jam I heard from Fish since 2003. Even more personally, closer to my heart, this New Year's Eve run was the first time that I entered Madison Square Garden during its three-year renovation, and I had very mixed feelings about what I saw. There were so many changes that, nine years later, I still haven't quite come to terms with. So let's hear about my experience about Carini from December 30th, 2012 at Madison Square Garden. I've brought this up a number of times on previous episodes, but growing up and living most of my adult life on Long Island, I've been very lucky in terms of live music. I've been so lucky because I had at least three major hometown venues— Jones Beach Amphitheater might have been the closest, the Nassau Coliseum was just as accessible, and of course, Madison Square Garden. When I was a kid, I didn't go to Jones Beach that often, but my parents would take me to small-time concerts at Nassau. Uh, We'd go to circus performances, Islanders games, and it was just 15 minutes from my house, so to go to the Coliseum, it was no big deal. In a way, it felt like home, even though I wasn't raised an Islanders fan. At the same time, my dad had an executive job in an advertising firm in New York City, so he had the opportunity a lot of the time to see the Knicks and the Rangers and other big events at the same time at Madison Square Garden. When we went to MSG instead of the Coliseum, it was a much bigger deal. We had to get on the train. We had to uh, go 40 minutes. We had to check schedules. We had to check out what we were going to do for dinner before going, and lots of these times were in the early to mid-90s. By coincidence, it was also when the Rangers and the Knicks were perennial contenders. They were really at the top of their game from, let's say, 1990 to 1997, I would say. There was no excitement like a Knicks-Bulls game or a Rangers-Devils game at Madison Square Garden. And maybe because of these teams' success, the energy at MSG was much different than the homespun Nassau Coliseum. The Coliseum was familiar and predictable and always accessible. Madison Square Garden was more like an edge-of-your-seat roller coaster. It was electric in there. It was emotional, and it was thrilling. There was always the sense that something great could happen at any moment. And at the Garden, everything was more colorful. There were those purple and turquoise seats. It felt like we were going somewhere different and unique. Looking back now, those seats and the design, the colors pretty much reeked of early 90s fashion, yet they felt perfect for the time and the place. 
Those seats in particular didn't match either the Rangers or the Knicks' colors. They were not representative of New York, and they didn't look like any other arena. In addition, there was a giant concourse inside MSG. A person could move around the entire space inside the arena with ever having to leave the inside. It didn't matter which section you were in. You could move 360 degrees from one area to the other, and you would never miss any of the action. In other words, if Nassau was home, then MSG was like your rich friend's house where everything seemed a bit more modern and more expensive than yours. At some point in 2009 or 2010, James Dolan must have seen the new Yankee Stadium and City Field and developed a sudden inferiority complex about his own venue. As a result, Dolan poured a ton of money, it's estimated to be about a billion dollars, into a gradual three-year makeover of Madison Square Garden. He was determined to keep MSG modern and state-of-the-art, as it seemed like no big deal for cities across the U.S. to build new stadiums, build new arenas to accommodate new technology at the time. So when I walked into the Garden on December 29th, 2012, the night before today's Carini performance... I immediately noticed that the entrance and the concourses were a major improvement. Before these renovations, it was tight and almost claustrophobic. It was a really thin walkway that could never handle the huge crowds that needed to navigate it. Now, in 2012, they were wide. They were beautiful. The entrance was clean and enclosed in glass ceilings that could manage however many people needed to get by at the same time. There was even enough room for people to wait in a beer line while others could walk behind them and they didn't bump into each other. It wasn't until you got something new that you realized how outdated and old the previous version was. But my excitement and being impressed was kind of short-lived because once I gave my ticket, went up the escalators, and got inside the arena in 2012, it was a disaster. I couldn't believe what I saw. When each show began, I also couldn't believe what I heard. Totally gone was the wide, flat bowl that allowed for free movement and almost universal sight lines to the stage. Of course, the old Madison Square Garden had obstructed views here and there, but this was much, much worse. It became a huge hassle to move around the venue from one section to the other. And the ends of the bowl, the curves at each end, they were almost segregated from the rest of the arena because you needed a different entrance and a different staircase for access. If you had a friend sitting in one side of the arena and you were in another, it really required precise planning and a certain type of coordination to meet up. In the old MSG, this was never an issue. But by far, the most egregious offense was the placement of the Delta Sky Bridges, these catwalks that hang down from the roof of the arena. Now, full disclosure, I've never seen a show from the Sky Bridge. I know a lot of people who have said it's one of the best places to be in the garden when Fish is playing. And when you're up there, that very well may be true, but for my opinion, it's an unforgivable scar on what used to be the best indoor venue to see fish. The sky bridges wrecked the upper rows of the 300s. Not only did it become an obstructed view for anyone with a seat past row 14, but the sound was noticeably blocked from the PA. For a venue famous for its sound quality, it created not just an obstructed view, but an obstructed sound for about an eighth of the arena. I hated it. But on December 30th, 2012, I was lucky enough to have seats below row 14. I was about halfway up in the 200s and hoping for the best because I was disgusted with what I saw the previous night. 
December 29th was good, but it wasn't great. So once the second set of December 30th began with a fantastic Down With Disease and an interlude of 20 years later, it was all leading up to one of the best versions of Carini ever. By the time Fish played Carini, it was loud in Madison Square Garden. It was loud and it was aggressive. Right away, you could hear the direction that Carini is going in once the jam starts. Maybe not everyone likes darker, abstract jams, but I was in heaven. When everyone starts screaming, Carini had a lumpy head, we were all ready for blast off, and you could hear Mike leading the way. little later on, there were points in the jam when one member would lead the way, but also other parts where everyone kind of linked up. For the first five minutes or so, it was mostly Trey and Mike leading it and maybe switching off a bit, and Fishman was just powering through with the rhythm. But there were also parts where Paige would suddenly take the lead on the piano and it would lead the whole jam into a different direction. Then at about seven and a half minutes, someone flips a switch. I don't know what happened, but the band completely dives off the deep end. Of all of the different options, it's Fishman on the bass drum and his toms that come to the forefront. There's feedback, there's dissonance, there's anger and confusion, and just a tiny little thread back to Carini, if you're even willing to hear it. It's complete chaos.
just after nine minutes, things dissipate. They go down to nearly nothing. No one could walk away disappointed if the band decided to switch gears here and segue into a different song or a completely different jam or a different sound entirely. But they're not ready to let go of the darkness just yet. Out comes Fishman's bass drum to bring us back into the unknown. I don't usually use the word creepy to describe fish jams, but there's very few other words that would work here. At around 10 minutes, things get tribal. There's no other way to put it. I'm not even kidding. I expected them to start playing Enter Sandman by Metallica at one point. Toward the very end of the jam, things have sort of solidified. I was hoping that it would stay like this for a long time. Trey joined in with a really wicked guitar line that sounded practiced, and I could even say scary, but I know it wasn't practiced. Rather than opening the door to a new jam or a new direction, it really now, in retrospect, sounds like it was a signal to end the jam, and then change everything in the room completely. He started backwards down the number line, and then Julius... By the end of this jam, we had no idea what hit us.
It took me the rest of the set, or maybe even the rest of the night, to process this sequence of down with disease, into 20 years later, into Carini. And even though I wasn't happy with the newer version of Madison Square Garden, at least it had been baptized with this great jam. This Carini was the best jam of the 2012 New Year's Eve run, and I would probably argue of the 2011 run, and maybe one of the best versions of Carini ever. These days, several years later, I'll still complain about getting seats above row 14 in the upper sections of the garden, but I can at least rest assured that the band could bring out the dark magic no matter what MSG looks like. And that's it for today's mini-episode of Attendance Bias. Welcome back to my personal history with fish. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please reach out to me on social media, specifically Instagram and Twitter. I'll be happy to send you a free sticker. Also, whatever app you use to listen to your podcasts, please leave a rating and a review of Attendance Bias. It would be a very big help. I'd like to thank Fish.net for helping me out with some of the stats on today's episode. I'd like to thank Fish.in, Fishin', for use of the recording in today's episode. And I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for always listening and supporting. Thank you again so much, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.